0: Chapters forty six, forty-seven, and forty-eight of the Moon and Sixpence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads. The Moon and Sixpence By William Somerset Mom. Chapter 46. Had not been in Tahiti long before I met Captain Nichols. He came in one morning when I was having breakfast on the terrace of the hotel, and introduced himself. He had heard that I was interested in Charles Strickland, and announced that he was come to have a talk about him. They are as fond of gossip in Tahiti as in an English village, and one or two inquiries I made for pictures by Strickland had been quickly spread. I asked the stranger if he had breakfasted. "'Yes, I have my coffee early,' he answered. "'but I don't mind having a drop of whiskey.' "'I called the Chinese boy. "'You don't think it's too early?' said the captain. "'You and your liver must decide that between you,' I replied. "'I'm practically a teetotaler,' he said, "'as he poured himself out a good half-tumbler of Canadian Club. "'When he smiled, he showed broken and discoloured teeth. "'He was a very lean man, of no more than average height, "'with grey hair cut short and a stubbly grey mustache. He had not shaved for a couple of days. His face was deeply lined, burned brown by long exposure to the sun, and he had a pair of small blue eyes which were astonishingly shifty. They moved quickly, following my smallest gesture, and they gave him the look of a very thorough rogue. But at the moment he was all heartiness and good fellowship. He was dressed in a bedraggled suit of khaki, and his hands would have been all the better for a wash. I knew Strickland well," he said, as he leaned back in his chair and lit the cigar I had offered him. It's through me he came out to the islands. Where did you meet him? I asked. In Marseilles. What were you doing there? He gave me an ingratiating smile. Well, I guess I was on the beach. My friend's appearance suggested that he was now in the same predicament, and I prepared myself to cultivate an agreeable acquaintance. The society of beach always repays the small pains you need be at to enjoy it. They are easy of approach and affable in conversation. They seldom put on airs, and the offer of a drink is a sure way to their hearts. You need no laborious steps to enter upon familiarity with them, and you can earn not only their confidence but their gratitude by turning an attentive ear to their discourse. They look upon conversation as the great pleasure of life, thereby proving the excellence of their civilization, and for the most part they are entertaining talkers. The extent of their experience is pleasantly balanced by the fertility of their imagination. It cannot be said that they are without guile, but they have a tolerant respect for the law, when the law is supported by strength. It is hazardous to play poker with them, but their ingenuity adds a peculiar excitement to the best game in the world. I came to know Captain Nichols very well before I left Tahiti, and I am the richer for his acquaintance. I do not consider that the cigars and whiskey he consumed at my expense he always refused cocktails since he was practically a teetotaler, and the few dollars borrowed with a civil air of conferring a favor upon me that passed from my pocket to his were in any way equivalent to the entertainment he afforded me. I remained his debtor. I should be sorry if my conscience, insisting on a rigid attention to the matter in hand, forced me to dismiss him in a couple of lines. I do not know why Captain Nichols first left England. It was a matter upon which he was reticent, and with persons of his kind a direct question is never very discreet. He hinted at undeserved misfortune. And there is no doubt that he looked upon himself as the victim of injustice. My fancy played with the various forms of fraud and violence, and I agreed with him sympathetically when he remarked that the authorities in the old country were so damned technical. But it was nice to see that any unpleasantness he had endured in his native land had not impaired his ardent patriotism. He frequently declared that England was the finest country in the world, sir and he felt a lively superiority over Americans, Colonials, Dagoes, Dutchmen, and Kanakas. But I do not think he was a happy man. He suffered from dyspepsia, and he might often be seen sucking a tablet of pepsin. In the morning his appetite was poor, but this affliction alone would hardly have impaired his spirits. He had a greater cause of discontent with life than this. Eight years before he had rashly married a wife, there are men whom a merciful providence has undoubtedly ordained to a single life, but who from wilfulness or through circumstances they could not cope with, have flown in the face of its decrees. There is no object more deserving of pity than the married bachelor. Of such was Captain Nichols. I met his wife. She was a woman of twenty-eight, I should think, though of a type whose age is always doubtful, for she cannot have looked different when she was twenty and at forty would look no older. She gave me an impression of extraordinary tightness. Her plain face with its narrow lips was tight, her skin was stretched tightly over her bones, her smile was tight, her hair was tight, her clothes were tight, and the white drill she wore had all the effect of black bombazine. I could not imagine why Captain Nichols had married her, and having married her, why he had not deserted her. Perhaps he had, often, and his melancholy arose from the fact that he could never succeed. However far he went, and in howsoever secret a place he hid himself, I felt sure that Mrs. Nichols, inexorable as fate and remorseless as conscience, would presently rejoin him. He could as little escape her as the cause can escape the effect. The rogue, like the artist and perhaps the gentleman, belongs to no class. He is not embarrassed by the sans-jean of the hobo, nor put out of countenance by the etiquette of the prince. But Mrs. Nichols belonged to the well-defined class, of late become vocal, which is known as the lower middle. Her father, in fact, was a policeman. I am certain that he was an efficient one. I do not know what her hold was on the captain, but I do not think it was love. I never heard her speak, but it may be that in private she had a copious conversation." At any rate, Captain Nichols was frightened to death of her. Sometimes, sitting with me on the terrace of the hotel, he would become conscious that she was walking in the road outside. She did not call him. She gave no sign that she was aware of his existence. She merely walked up and down composedly. Then a strange uneasiness would seize the captain. He would look at his watch and sigh. "'Well, I must be off,' he said. Neither wit nor whiskey could detain him, then yet he was a man who had faced undaunted hurricane and typhoon, and would not have hesitated to fight a dozen unarmed niggers with nothing but a revolver to help him. Sometimes Mrs. Nichols would send her daughter, a pale-faced, sullen child of seven, to the hotel. "'Mother wants you,' she said in a whining tone. "'Very well, my dear,' said Captain Nichols. He rose to his feet at once, and accompanied his daughter along the road. I suppose it was a very pretty example of the triumph of spirit over matter, and so my digression has at least the advantage of a moral. So ends Chapter 46 Chapter 47 I have tried to put some connection into the various things Captain Nichols told me about Strickland, and here set them down in the best order I can. They made one another's acquaintance during the latter part of the winter following my last meeting with strickland in paris how he had passed the intervening months i do not know but life must have been very hard for captain nichols saw him first in the asel there was a strike at marseilles at the time and strickland having come to the end of his resources had apparently found it impossible to earn the small sum he needed to keep body and soul together the asel is a large stone building where pauper and vagabond May get a bed for a week, provided their papers are in order and they can persuade the friars in charge that they are working men. Captain Nicholls noticed Strickland for his size and his singular appearance among the crowd that waited for the doors to open. They waited listlessly, some walking to and fro, some leaning against the wall, and others seated on the curb with their feet in the gutter. And when they filed into the office, he heard the monk who read his papers address him in English but he did not have a chance to speak to him, since, as he entered the common room, a monk came in with a huge Bible in his arms, mounted a pulpit which was at the end of the room, and began the service which the wretched outcast had to endure as the price of their lodging. He and Strickland were assigned to different rooms, and when, thrown out of bed at five in the morning by a stalwart monk, he had made his bed and washed his face, Strickland had already disappeared. Captain Nichols wandered about the streets for an hour of bitter cold, and then made his way to the place Victor Jaloux, where the sailor-men are wont to congregate. Dozing against the pedestal of a statue, he saw Strickland again. He gave him a kick to awaken him. "'Come and have breakfast, mate,' he said. "'Go to hell,' answered Strickland. I recognized my friend's limited vocabulary, and I prepared to regard Captain Nichols as a trustworthy witness. "'Busted?' asked the captain. "'Blast you!' answered Strickland. "'Come along with me. I'll get you some breakfast.' After a moment's hesitation, Strickland scrambled to his feet, and together they went to the Bouchy de pain, where the hungry are given a wedge of bread, which they must eat there and then, for it is forbidden to take it away, and then to the Cuyel de Soupe, where for a week, at eleven and four, you may get a bowl of thin salt soup.' the two buildings are placed far apart so that only the starving should be tempted to make use of them so they had breakfast and so began the queer companionship of charles strickland and captain nichols they must have spent something like four months at marseilles in one another's society their career was devoid of adventure if by adventure you mean unexpected or thrilling incident for their days were occupied in the pursuit of enough money to get a night's lodging and such food as would stay the pangs of hunger. But I wish I could give here the pictures, colored and racy, which Captain Nichols' vivid narrative offered to the imagination. His account of their discoveries in the low life of a seaport town would have made a charming book, and in the various characters that came their way the student might easily have found matter for a very complete dictionary of rogues. But I must content myself with a few paragraphs. I received the impression of a life intense, and brutal, savage, multicoloured, and vivacious. It made the Marseille that I knew, gesticulating and sunny, with its comfortable hotels and its restaurants crowded with the well to do, tame and commonplace. I envied men who had seen with their own eyes the sights that Captain Nichols described. When the doors of the Azil de Nuit were closed to them, Strickland and Captain Nichols sought the hospitality of tough Bill. This was the master of a sailor's boarding-house, a huge mulatto with a heavy fist, who gave the stranded mariner food and shelter till he found him a berth. They lived with him a month, sleeping with a dozen others, Swedes, Negroes, Brazilians, on the floor of the two bare rooms in his house which he assigned to his charges, and every day they went with him to the place Victor Jaloux, Whither came ship's captains in search of a man? He was married to an American woman, obese and slatternly, fallen to this pass by heaven knows what process of degradation, and every day the boarders took it in turns to help her with the housework. Captain Nichols looked upon it as a smart piece of work on Strickland's part that he had got out of this by painting a portrait of Tough Bill. Tough Bill not only paid for the canvas, colors, and brushes but gave Strickland a pound of smuggled tobacco into the bargain. For all I know, this picture may still adorn the parlor of the tumble-down little house somewhere near the Quai de la Joliette, and I suppose it could now be sold for fifteen hundred pounds. Strickland's idea was to ship on some vessel bound for Australia or New Zealand, and from there make his way to Samoa or Tahiti. I do not know how he had come upon the notion of going to the South Seas, though I remember that his imagination had long been haunted by an island, all green and sunny, encircled by a sea more blue than is found in northern latitudes. I suppose that he clung to Captain Nichols because he was acquainted with those parts, and it was Captain Nichols who persuaded him that he would be more comfortable in Tahiti. You see, Tahiti's French, he explained to me, and the French aren't so damn technical. I thought I saw his point. Strickland had no papers, but that was not a matter to disconcert Tough Bill when he saw a profit. He took the first month's wages of the sailor for whom he found a berth, and he provided Strickland with those of an English stoker who had providentially died on his hands. But both Captain Nichols and Strickland were bound east, and it chanced that the only opportunities for signing on were with ships sailing west. Twice Strickland refused a berth on tramps sailing for the United States and once on a collier going to Newcastle. Tough Bill had no patience with an obstinacy which could only result in loss to himself, and on the last occasion he flung both Strickland and Captain Nichols out of his house without more ado. They found themselves once more adrift. Tough Bill's fare was seldom extravagant, and you rose from his table almost as hungry as you sat down, but for some days they had good reason to regret it. They learned what hunger was. The collier de soup and the azel de nuit were both closed to them, and their only sustenance was the wedge of bread which the bouchy de pont provided. They slept where they could, sometimes in an empty truck on a siding near the station, sometimes in a cart behind a warehouse. But it was bitterly cold, and after an hour or two of uneasy dozing they would tramp the streets again. What they felt the lack of most bitterly was tobacco and Captain Nichols, for his part, could not do without it. He took to hunting the can of beer for cigarette ends and the butt-end of cigars which the promenaders of the night before had thrown away. "'I've tasted worse smoking mixtures in a pipe,' he added, with a philosophic shrug of his shoulders, as he took a couple of cigars from the case I offered him, putting one in his mouth and the other in his pocket. Now and then they made a bit of money, Sometimes a mail-steamer would come in, and Captain Nichols, having scraped acquaintance with the timekeeper, would succeed in getting the pair of them a job as stevedores. When it was an English boat, they would dodge into the forecastle and get a hearty breakfast from the crew. They took the risk of running against one of the ship's officers and being hustled down the gangway with the toe of a boot to speed their going. "'There's no harm in a kick in the hide quarters when your belly's full,' said Captain Nichols, and personally I never take it in bad part, and officers got to think about discipline. I had a lively picture of Captain Nichols flying headlong down a narrow gangway before the uplifted boot of an angry mate, and, like a true Englishman, rejoicing in the spirit of the mercantile marine. There were often odd jobs to be got about the fish market. Once they each of them earned a franc by loading trucks with innumerable boxes of oranges that had been dumped down on the quay. One day they had a stroke of luck. One of the boarding-masters got a contract to paint a tramp that had come in from Madagascar round the Cape of Good Hope, and they spent several days on a plank hanging over the side, covering the rusty hull with paint. It was a situation that must have appealed to Strickland's sardonic humor. I asked Captain Nichols how he bore himself during these hardships. "'Never knew him to say a cross word,' answered the Captain. "'He'd be a bit surly sometimes.' But when we hadn't had a bite since morning, and we hadn't even got the price of a lie-down at the chinks, he'd be as lively as a cricket. I was not surprised at this. Strickland was just the man to rise superior to circumstances, when they were such as to occasion despondency in most. But whether this was due to equanimity of soul, or to contradictoriness, it would be difficult to say. The chink's head was a name the beachcombers gave to a wretched inn off the rubutri, kept by a one-eyed Chinaman, where for six sous you could sleep in a cot, and for three on the floor. Here they made friends with others in as desperate condition as themselves, and when they were penniless, and the night was bitter cold, they were glad to borrow from anyone who had earned a stray franc during the day the price of a roof over their heads. They were not niggardly, these tramps, and he who had money did not hesitate to share it among the rest. They belonged to all the countries in the world, but this was no bar to good fellowship, for they felt themselves free men of a country whose frontiers include them all, the great country of Cocaine. But I guess Strickland was an ugly customer when he was roused, said Captain Nichols reflectively. One day we ran into Tough Bill in the place, and he asked Charlie for the papers he'd given him. "'You'd better come and take them if you want them,' says Charlie. He was a powerful fellow, Tough Bill." but he didn't quite like the look of Charlie, so he began cursing him. He called him pretty near every name he could lay hands on, and when Tough Bill began cursing, it was worth listening to him. Well, Charlie stuck it for a bit, then he stepped forward, and he just said, Get out, you bloody swine! It wasn't so much what he said, but the way he said it. Tough Bill never spoke another word. You could see him go yellow, and he walked away as if he'd remembered he had a date. Strickland, according to Captain Nichols, did not use exactly the words I have given, but since this book is meant for family reading, I have thought it better, at the expense of truth, to put into his mouth expressions familiar to the domestic circle. Now, Tough Bill was not the man to put up with humiliation at the hands of a common sailor. His power depended on his prestige, and first one, then another, of the sailors who lived in his house told them that he had sworn to do Strickland in. One night Captain Nichols and Strickland were sitting in one of the bars of the Rue Brutri. The Rue Brutri is a narrow street of one-storied houses, each house consisting of but one room. They are like the booths in a crowded fair or the cages of animals in a circus. At every door you see a woman. Some lean lazily against the side-posts, humming to themselves, or calling to the passer-by in a raucous voice and some listlessly read. They are French, Italian, Spanish, Japanese, colored, some are fat, and some are thin, and under the thick paint on their faces, the heavy smears on their eyebrows, and the scarlet of their lips, you see the lines of age and the scars of dissipation. Some wear black shifts and flesh-colored stockings. Some with curly hair dyed yellow are dressed like little girls in short muslin frocks. Through the open door you see a red-tiled floor, a large wooden bed, and on a deal-table a ewer and a basin. A motley crowd saunters along the streets. Lescars off a P and O, blond Northmen from a Swedish bark, Japanese from a man-of-war, English sailors, Spaniards, pleasant-looking fellows from a French cruiser, Negroes off an American tramp. By day it is merely sorted but at night, lit only by the lamps in the little huts, the street has a sinister beauty. The hideous lust that pervades the air is oppressive and horrible, and yet there is something mysterious in the sight which haunts and troubles you. You feel, I know not, what primitive force which repels and yet fascinates you. Here all the decencies of civilization are swept away, and you feel that men are face to face with a sombre reality. There is an atmosphere that is at once intense and tragic. In the bar in which Strickland and Nichols sat a mechanical piano was loudly grinding out dance music. Round the room people were sitting at table, here half a dozen sailors uproariously drunk, there a group of soldiers, and in the middle, crowded together, couples were dancing. Bearded sailors with brown faces and large horny hands clasped their partners in a tight embrace. The women wore nothing but a shift. Now and then two sailors would get up and dance together. The noise was deafening. People were singing, shouting, laughing, and when a man gave a long kiss to the girl sitting on his knees, cat from the English sailors increased the din. The air was heavy with the dust beaten up by the heavy boots of the men, and grey with smoke. It was very hot. Behind the bar was seated a woman nursing her baby. The waiter, an undersized youth, with a flat, spotty face, hurried to and fro, carrying a tray laden with glasses of beer. In a little while, Tough Bill, accompanied by two huge negroes, came in, and it was easy to see that he was already three parts drunk. He was looking for trouble. He lurched against a table at which three soldiers were sitting, and knocked over a glass of beer. There was an angry altercation, and the owner of the bar stepped forward and ordered Tough Bill to go. He was a hefty fellow, in the habit of standing no-nonsense from his customers, and Tough Bill hesitated. The landlord was not a man he cared to tackle, for the police were on his side, and with an oath he turned on his heel. Suddenly he caught sight of Strickland. He rolled up to him. He did not speak. He gathered the spittle in his mouth and spat full in Strickland's face. Strickland seized his glass and flung it at him. The dancers stopped suddenly still. There was an instant of complete silence, but when Tough Bill threw himself on Strickland, the lust of battle seized them all, and in a moment there was a confused scrimmage. Tables were overturned, glasses crashed to the ground. There was a hellish row. The women scattered to the door and behind the bar. Passers-by surged in from the street. You heard curses in every tongue, the sound of blows, cries, and in the middle of the room a dozen men were fighting with all their might. On a sudden the police rushed in, and everyone who could made for the door. When the bar was more or less cleared, Tough Bill was lying insensible on the floor with a great gash in his head. Captain Nichols dragged Strickland, bleeding from a wound in his arm, his clothes in rags, into the street. His own face was covered with blood from a blow on the nose. "'I guess you'd better get out of Marseilles before Tough Bill comes out of hospital,' he said to Strickland, when they had got back to the chink's head and were cleaning themselves. This beats cockfighting," said Strickland. I could see his sardonic smile. Captain Nichols was anxious. He knew tough Bill's vindictiveness. Strickland had downed the mulatto twice, and the mulatto, sober, was a man to be reckoned with. He would bide his time stealthily. He would be in no hurry. But one night Strickland would get a knife thrust in his back, and in a day or two the corpse of a nameless beachcomber would be fished out of the dirty water of the harbor. Nichols went next evening to Tough Bill's house and made inquiries. He was in hospital still, but his wife, who had been to see him, said he was swearing hard to kill Strickland when they let him out. A week passed. "'That's what I always say,' reflected Captain Nichols. "'When you hurt a man, hurt him bad. It gives you a bit of time to look about and think what you'll do next.' Then Strickland had a bit of luck. A ship bound for Australia had sent to the sailors' home for a stoker in place of one who had thrown himself overboard off Gibraltar in an attack of delirium tremens. "'You double down to the harbour, my lad,' said the captain to Strickland, "'and sign on. You've got your papers.' Strickland set off at once, and that was the last Captain Nicholls saw of him. The ship was only in port for six hours, and in the evening Captain Nichols watched the vanishing smoke from her funnels as she ploughed east through the wintry sea." I have narrated all this as best I could, because I like the contrast of these episodes with the life that I had seen Strickland live in Ashley Gardens when he was occupied with stocks and shares. But I am aware that Captain Nichols was an outrageous liar, and I dare say there is not a word of truth in anything he told me. I should not be surprised to learn that he had never seen Strickland in his life, and owed his knowledge of Marseilles to the pages of a magazine. SO ENDS CHAPTER 47 CHAPTER 48 It is here that I purposed to end my book. My first idea was to begin it with the account of Strickland's last years in Tahiti, and with his horrible death, and then go back and relate what I knew of his beginnings. This I meant to do, not from wilfulness, but because I wished to leave Strickland setting out, with I know not what fancies in his lonely soul, for the unknown islands which fired his imagination. I liked the picture of him starting at the age of forty-seven, when most men have already settled comfortably in a groove, for a new world. I saw him, the sea-gray, under the mistral and foam-flecked, watching the vanishing coast of France, which he was destined never to see again, and I thought there was something gallant in his bearing and dauntless in his soul. I wish so to end on a note of hope, it seemed to emphasize the unconquerable spirit of man. But I could not manage it. Somehow I could not get into my story, and after trying once or twice, I had to give it up. I started from the beginning in the usual way, and made up my mind I could only tell what I knew of Strickland's life in the order in which I learnt the facts. Those that I have now are fragmentary. I am in the position of a biologist who from a single bone must reconstruct not only the appearance of an extinct animal, but its habits. Strickland made no particular impression on the people who came in contact with him in Tahiti. To them he was no more than a beachcomber in constant need of money, remarkable only for the peculiarity that he painted pictures which seemed to them absurd. And it was not till he had been dead for some years, and agents came from the dealers in Paris and Berlin to look for any pictures— which might still remain on the island, that they had any idea that among them had dwelt a man of consequence. They remembered then that they could have bought for a song canvases which now were worth large sums, and they could not forgive themselves for the opportunity which had escaped them. There was a Jewish trader called Cohen, who had come by one of Strickland's pictures in a singular way. He was a little old Frenchman, with soft kind eyes and a pleasant smile, half trader and half seaman, who owned a cutter in which he wandered boldly among the Pomatou and the Marcassas, taking out trade goods and bringing back copper, shell, and pearls. I went to see him because I was told he had a large black pearl which he was willing to sell cheaply, and when I discovered that it was beyond my means, I began to talk to him about Strickland. He had known him well. You see, I was interested in him because he was a painter, he told me, "'We don't get many painters in the islands, and I was sorry for him because he was such a bad one. I gave him his first job. I had a plantation on the peninsula, and I wanted a white overseer. You never get any work out of the natives unless you have a white man over them. I said to him, you'll have plenty of time for painting, and you can earn a bit of money. I knew he was starving, but I offered him good wages.' I can't imagine that he was a very satisfactory overseer, I said smiling. I made allowances. I have always had a sympathy for artists. It is in our blood, you know. But he only remained a few months. When he had enough money to buy paints and canvases, he left me. The place had got hold of him by then, and he wanted to get away into the bush. But I continued to see him now and then. He would turn up in Peppete every few months and stay a little while he'd get money out of someone or other and then disappear again. It was on one of these visits that he came to me and asked for the loan of two hundred francs. He looked as if he hadn't had a meal for a week, and I hadn't the heart to refuse him. Of course, I never expected to see my money again. Well, a year later he came to see me once more, and he brought a picture with him. He did not mention the money he owed me, but he said, Here is a picture of your plantation that I've painted for you. I looked at it. I did not know what to say, but of course I thanked him, and when he had gone away I showed it to my wife. What was it like? I asked. Do not ask me. I could not make head or tail of it. I never saw such a thing in my life. What shall we do with it? I said to my wife. We can never hang it up, she said. People would laugh at us. So she took it into an attic and put it away with all sorts of rubbish, for my wife can never throw anything away. It is her mania. Then imagine to yourself, just before the war, my brother wrote to me from Paris, and said, do you know anything about an English painter who lived in Tahiti? It appears that he was a genius, and his pictures fetch large prices. See if you can lay your hands on anything and send it to me. There's money to be made. So I said to my wife, what about that picture that Strickland gave me? Is it possible that it is still in the attic? Without doubt, she answered for you know that I never throw anything away. It is my mania." We went up to the attic, and there, among I know not what rubbish that had been gathered during the thirty years we have inhabited that house, was the picture. I looked at it again, and I said, who would have thought that the overseer of my plantation on the peninsula, to whom I lent two hundred francs, had genius? Do you see anything in the picture?" "'No,' she said, "'it does not resemble the plantation and I have never seen coconuts with blue leaves, but they are mad in Paris, and it may be that your brother will be able to sell it for the two hundred francs you lent Strickland. Well, we packed it up, and we sent it to my brother, and at last I received a letter from him. What do you think he said? I received your picture, he said, and I confess I thought it was a joke that you had played on me. I would not have given the cost of postage for the picture." I was half afraid to show it to the gentleman who had spoken to me about it. Imagine my surprise when he said it was a masterpiece, and offered me thirty thousand francs. I dare say he would have paid more, but frankly I was so taken aback that I lost my head. I accepted the offer before I was able to collect myself. Then Monsieur Cohan said an admirable thing. I wish that poor Strickland had been still alive. I wonder what he would have said when I gave him twenty nine thousand eight hundred francs for his picture. So ends chapter forty eight.